So uh, I want to start this morning by reading from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. Does anyone recognize those words? I, I, I hope so. You should, right? Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You notice that the words of the second hymn that we sang this morning, Immortal and Visible, come directly from this, uh, this passage of Scripture, this, this verse. As we think about what it means to be the church, this is our focus for this year, what it, what it means for us to be the church. It's part of why we have pushed so hard to get a mission trip together, like the one that we are wanting to organize to Harrisburg, is because we are called... Uh, we are called to be the church. Church is not a building, nor is it a, a scheduled time of meeting, although it's okay to use the word church for those things. But the church is what we are. It's us. It's the people of God. It's who we're called to be. And, and so uh, the question is, what does it mean for us to be the church? Well, it means, it means quite a, a large number of things, and, and we're focused on that throughout this year uh, of 2022. One of the things it means to be the church is that we are a people of worship. That we are a people of worship. We are to be a singing, praising, worshiping people. We're the church. This is what we do. This, this is what we do as the church. We sing, we praise, we worship. Now, let me just take one second on this word worship. I'm going to get back to 1 Timothy 1.17 in a minute and some other, some other verses from 1 and 2 Timothy. But let me just explain the idea of worship in, in a nutshell, a really fast version of the word worship. Worship. Uh, there's, a, there's a, a phrase that gets used sometimes by theologians, the law of first mention, the law of first mention. That is that the first time something is mentioned in Scripture, it often holds the key to understanding that word throughout the rest of Scripture. Now, it may not always be the case, but very often the first time something is mentioned in Scripture, it's key to understanding what that thing is going to mean throughout the rest of Scripture. Well, the first time the word worship is used in Scripture is in Genesis 22, verse 5. The first time it's used is when Abraham is commanded by God to take his son Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. He's supposed to take his son He's supposed to offer him there as a sacrifice. Now, pause for a second. God is not in favor of human sacrifice. This is a pretty exceptional event. In fact, human sacrifice is specifically forbidden in Scripture. It's a, it's a rather unique event. We know the end of the story. God does not allow Abraham to go through with it. But listen, this is, this is probably the most extreme test of faith that God ever imposed on any man. Take your child and offer your child as a sacrifice. Okay? Um, not even take him to a dangerous place and put him at risk. Take him out with your own hand in obedience to me. Okay? 
This is, this is the most extreme test of faith God ever gave to any man. The word worship comes in in this way. Abraham, as he's, as he's on his way, they get, they get close to the mountain and he says to his servants, you stay here, you stay here. I and the lad Isaac will go a bit further and worship. And he's the only one who knows what he's about to do. We will go and worship. In other words, in obedience to God, I'm going to go sacrifice my child. There is no way you can go further than that in worship. That is the extreme of worship. right? The idea is simply this, that worship involves complete obedience and devotion to God, no matter what he asks you to do. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how painful it is, no matter how inconvenient it is, no matter how uncomfortable it is, that this is what worship is. Worship is a life devoted to God in obedience to Him. In other words, worship is a total life package thing. It's not just a singing thing. Okay? Worship is a very big concept. We are to be a people of worship. When Paul says something like, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God, he's describing worship. Everything you do should be done with the concept of, I am worshiping God. I am a worshiper of God. If you can't do it while worshiping, you shouldn't do it. All of it is worship. It's a life of worship. Now, hopefully that's enough to to paint a picture of the fact that worship is not merely music, okay? By the way, fellowship is not merely food either. But it's nice to fellowship that way, okay? But fellowship is much more than food. Worship is much more than singing and music. But it should be said that, that, that uh, singing and music have been, always been, and are to this day a significant part of the church's expression of worship. A very significant part. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, not to mention church history, music, song, and praises uttered, that is, praises spoken, sung, out loud, praises shared, have been a staple of Christian worship both privately and corporately. And this is what we're going to focus on for a few minutes today. We're going to focus on this part, this important part of worship. By the way, can I say this very quickly, that one of the reasons why we still sing old hymns around here at times is because it's part of a way we can communicate that we belong to a church that is bigger than us and, in fact, is bigger than time and space. That we are part of a church that extends beyond the boundaries of the living right now. It's not about me asserting myself and my culture and my generation is cooler than everyone that's ever existed. It's me acknowledging that I'm part of something big, part of something beyond myself. And, and, and listen, this is, this is a huge concept 
Because if, if, you, if you were allowed by God to have the opportunity to go to some place far from here, I guarantee you two things. I guarantee you, you will find Christians who worship, and I guarantee you they'll worship will be different than what you're accustomed to. And they're your brothers and sisters. They're your family. So you know what? When in Rome, get with the Roman program, right? Uh, I've said it before. I, uh, um, I remember the, the, uh, one of the missions trips in, in Mozambique, Africa, just thinking to myself, do these people know how to pray at any time when it's not dark, as in pre-dawn, and not yelling at the top of their lungs. God could hear them if they toned it down a little bit. But that's what they did. If it was still dark, they were up, and they were yelling to God, who was probably asleep and needed to be awakened by them. Right? Um, it was what it was. I'll tell you what. They knew how to pray. They knew how to pray. Culturally, it would have made some of us very uncomfortable to think about. Here they were in a room. By the way, these were not Pentecostals. They were not Pentecostals. Right? But they're, they're in the next room, and they're just several of them in there, and they're all just simultaneously at the top of their lungs, crying out to God. And, and speaking to him early in the morning. God bless them. They were praying. Right? The church. We're part of something bigger than us. And it's part of the value of sometimes thing, singing things that are maybe a little bit outside of what our preferences are. Believe me, um, uh, one of the things that I'm most anxious to give away is that the more... The less I lead worship, the happier my life will be. It's not because I don't enjoy leading worship. It's not, enjoy, it's not because I don't enjoy singing. It's because I know my limitations and I'd rather have somebody else doing this. And, 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 and I just get to participate. That, that would be great. Um, uh, but, but the fact of the matter is that, you should know this, uh, I often pick out songs to sing that are not my favorites, that I'm not really partial to. I just, you know, I think we should sing this song. We haven't sung this song in quite a while, and it'd be good for us to sing this hymn today, or this song today. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. All right, I got to move faster. Notice some scriptures in First and Second Timothy that deal with uh, similar themes to First Timothy 1.17. In fact, the way to say it is this. There's at least four hymns in First and Second Timothy. At least four hymns. That is, songs of praise in First and Second Timothy. The first one is the one we just read, First Timothy 1.17. Let me read the others to you real quick. First Timothy 3.16. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then here's the song. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. 
That was a song, taken up in glory. That was a hymn that the early church sang, a song that the early church sang. Here's another one. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. I put the print because we're starting in the middle of a sentence there, verse 15. Which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is, and here's the song, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That was a song they would sing. That was a hymn that they would sing. One more. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. It's a trustworthy statement. Here's the, here's the song part of it. It's a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's a song they would sing. So there's at least four of them in, in First and Second Timothy. Before we get into the specifics, let me just give you two generalities, two general ideas that come from, from these, uh, these scriptures that we just read, these songs. The first one is that these are spontaneous, heart-moved uh, expressions of praise. Spontaneous, heart-moved expressions of praise. Listen, this is what believers do. We praise out of full hearts. We praise out of full hearts. I'm tempted to say something like, if praise is difficult for you, check what your heart is full of. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? That, that when our hearts are filled with God's presence, praise will be a natural expression that comes out of our mouths. I will say this, it's really hard to talk a whole lot about something that you have not stored up on the inside much of, right? It's really hard. When, 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 when the presence of God and the truth of his word fills our hearts, one of the natural expressions that comes from us is praise. It's praise. It comes out of a full heart. I liken this to uh, the book of Nehemiah. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you'll find kind of the twin expression there. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's writing, talking about what happens, and then all of a sudden he stops and he just goes, Oh Lord, remember me, and he throws in a prayer in the middle of, of whatever he's saying, and he keeps doing it throughout the book. He just, these spontaneous bursts of prayer keep popping up throughout the book of Nehemiah. And in 1 Timothy, what we have is spontaneous bursts of worship, spontaneous bursts of praise that keep coming up throughout the, the books of 1 and 2 Timothy. Why? Because we speak out of the fullness of our hearts. Expressions of praise and worship should be natural to us because of who lives within us and because of what we nourish ourselves upon. If our hearts are filled with the right things, the right things will come out. Things like praise and worship will come out. That's one. The second thing is this, and... and, um, and I, I actually, uh, this is going to be a very minor point that's going to be covered quickly, so I'm just going to ask you to, in your hearts, emphasize this one. This is a big deal, okay? This is important. Paul, in First and Second Timothy, is 
training Timothy to be a spiritual leader in the church of Ephesus. He's telling Timothy how to set the church in order. And what he does throughout these books is he, he throws in these expressions of praise and worship because he is modeling to Timothy what comes out of the heart of a spiritual leader. He's showing him by example that this is part of the practice of spiritual leaders. The point is this. Please hear this. Here's, here's, I, 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 yeah, I just think this is vital. Listen. The, the weight and the burdens of spiritual leadership require, they require a heart that is strengthened and encouraged by being properly oriented toward God. Spiritual leadership gets heavy. There's a burden there. There's a weight there. Sometimes it feels like you're fighting hell itself. If you're not actively orienting your heart toward God through things like praise and worship, you are doing yourself a disservice and you will be running on empty. You will run on empty. You've got to... We, listen, we have to learn how to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Let me pause. How many of you could say, I could do a little bit better job of learning how to encourage myself in the Lord? I'm going to tell you this. If you're going to lead anybody around you, you have got to learn this skill. It's a, it's a non-optional skill to develop. Because if you don't, you will eventually wear yourself out. You'll wear out. We have to know what it is to encourage ourselves in the Lord. There is a strength that comes through a vital life of prayer and worship. And worship, the singing of praises unto God that gets us, please hear this, that gets us outside of ourselves and our circumstances and reminds us of who God is. If we don't do it, we will eventually get swallowed up by what's around us immediately. We'll get swallowed up. We will be Peter trying to walk on water in the midst of the winds and the waves when, the, when his eyes aren't on Jesus. You'll sink. Praise is a way to orient our hearts around the encouraging truth of God who is and who is yours and who sustains you and upholds you and gets you outside of thinking about what you're so burdened with in that day. It's a vital skill that we have to learn. All right. What do these hymns teach us about Christian worship? What can we glean from them? Let me real quickly run through three things uh, before we close. Three things that these hymns teach us that we can <clears throat> learn about worship. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to hit the button. Paul was exemplify, uh, exemplifying a vital leadership principle there. Um, uh, the first one is content. I want you to think with me for a second about the content of these hymns. So when we were singing Immortal Invisible, I asked you, I asked, what, what do you... How do you hear this hymn? What do you think about when you think about this hymn? How does your heart respond to this hymn? Um, it, seems, it seems that there are certain things in Christianity that, that are kind of cyclical. They go through, like they have their, they become popular. 
and then maybe they get overemphasized, and so they start losing their popularity, and someone starts saying, you know, I think we're going too far with this. And, and so someone starts calling the church to something a little bit different, and something else gets emphasized. And, and one of the things that happens is this, um, just, just to give you an example. Um, how, many of you, how many of you think uh, it's very appropriate to sing, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? that okay to sing? What a friend we have in Jesus. Is he your friend? Immortal, invisible, God only wise. That's different than what a friend we have in Jesus. Right? Uh, I've quoted this a number of times lately, but C.S. Lewis, when he's writing about Aslan, the Christ figure in his books, right? The Jesus figure in his books. At one point, he reminds us that this lion is not a tame lion. It's okay to call him your friend. So long as you don't forget that he's king of kings, lord of lords, in the words of 1 Timothy, the only potentate of the world, the sovereign one, right? This is a cyclical thing that sometimes... Sometimes we get in these cycles where Jesus is my friend. He's so buddy-buddy. He's so down-to-earth. He's so accessible. He's so reachable, right? That we, we lose a certain sense of reverence and awe and respect and, and, and a, a holy sense of fear. And then some people that have lived in an environment where it was nothing but inaccessible and, and unapproachable and and fear-based. Hey, listen, the, the story of Jesus as a friend comes like a, a cup of cold water on a hot day. Man, I needed to be refreshed by that. The point is that if we're going to properly understand God, we need the full balance of what Scripture teaches us about who He is. And in our singing, we reflect this. The content here, anyways, is a strong emphasis in these scriptures we just read. It's a strong emphasis on the nature and the attributes and the titles of God. That is, that these songs focus us on Him, on who He is, not just on what He does for us, but on who He is to us. Words like eternal, immortal, invisible, even the word only, only, the unique one, the only one, that he is sovereign, or phrases like king of kings, lord of lords, or unapproachable light, or, or uh, uh, just you keep reading throughout the hymns. The point is that each of these expressions teaches us something, reminds us about something of who God is of who God is. An emphasis on his nature, on his character, on who God is, on his attributes. Notice, I need to pick this thing back up. Notice that there's this balance between reverence and transcendence that are emphasized, but also the fact where we have, uh, we have scriptures where, for example, the throne of grace is one that you can approach boldly freely. That is that in, in the New Testament, there's a balance between reverence and transcendence, which are emphasized, but also these ideas of the approachability of God. What we have to remember 
is that God is so approachable by us because his son paid such a price for us. That he's not approachable because he's a casual God. He's approachable because in his might and power, he sent his son into this earth to make a way possible for us to approach him. Right? And it, 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 in, in, his, in his approachability, there's a glorifying of the work of Christ, which alone made God approachable by us. Right? That this is the truth that we have. So we have reverence and approachability. Notice also that these hymns are, are, uh, are some of them, Christ-focused. Christ-focused. They're very Christ-focused. 1 Timothy 3.16 turns our attention to Jesus' earthly ministry. Turns our attention to Jesus' earthly ministry. That, that Jesus was... Uh, excuse me, I'm turning my pages... Um, that Jesus was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world before he was then taken up into glory. That, that there's an emphasis on what he came to do and who he came to be. An emphasis on Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry. But there's also an emphasis on his, on his glorified position. 1 Timothy 6.16 that we read is referring to him when it says, he will bring about at the proper time, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, from verse 14, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, speaking to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, focusing on his earthly ministry as a suffering servant. But yes, also focusing on who Jesus is and his exalted and glorified personhood. The right hand of the Father. Christ-focused. Uh, I, I would say, and I think this is accurate, uh, I spent a, a fair amount of time, uh, more than usual, with the hymn book this past week. And, um, and the fact of the matter is, that there are more hymns written about Jesus than about God generally or the Holy Spirit. There is an incredible emphasis on the person of Christ, and that's as it should be. And that is as it should be. Notice, fourthly, that these hymns bring up a question for us. The hymns that are in 1st and 2nd Timothy tend to focus on God, which we generally tend to relate to the Father, right? God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The only time the Spirit is mentioned is when it says that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. But there's these hymns that focus on Expressions of praise toward God and praise toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that the church has grappled with is this. As far as I can think, if you really, really, really want a challenge, I'll give you one for fun. See if you can find in Scripture a 
a hymn or a song that speaks directly to the Holy Spirit. An expression of praise directly to the Holy Spirit. I don't think you'll find one. However, the church has always considered it appropriate to have a certain library of hymns and songs that address the person of the Holy Spirit directly, even though we don't have a biblical example of it. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. A song that is a prayer directly to the Holy Spirit. Believe it or not, the church has wrestled with this issue. Should Christians pray to the Holy Spirit? We have examples of praying to the Father. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, which art in heaven. We have examples of prayers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it appropriate to pray to or sing to the Holy Spirit? Well, the church has practiced this, and, 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 and I think we have to at least give some kind of rationale for this. Why? Why? Well, I think there's two things that are vital for us to understand. The first is this. Who inspired this book? Who inspired this book? The Holy Spirit did, right? It was the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God moving upon the hearts of men. Well, what is the Holy Spirit? What, what are we told in Scripture about the work of the Holy Spirit? Who does he always draw attention to? Right? He draws attention to the, to the work of the Father and, and especially to the work of the Son. Right? And so it's really not surprising that in a, in, a, in a scripture that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that he's not inspiring a whole lot of things that are directed to himself. He draws attention to the Father and to the Son. However, the church has said, despite the fact that we don't find examples of this in scripture, it's appropriate for us to do for this one reason. He is God. He's God. Coexistent, co-eternal with the Father and the Son. And therefore, if we are to worship God, then we are to worship Him, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the church has considered it appropriate to offer expressions of prayer and praise to the Holy Spirit, even though it's not something that we have uh, any, or at least not a lot, of biblical example for. Last thing here is that please notice that these hymns are both doctrinal and experiential. Again, this is one of those cyclical things. How many, how many of you know we can go too far with the whole experiential thing? Where, please hear this, worship eventually becomes all about us and how we feel. Right? Sometimes we just need to forget about us and how we feel and focus on who God is. But the point is that, that both are appropriate. So, yes, about, 70, about three of these hymns focus purely on who God is, and then one of them says, if we suffer with him, if we endure, we will reign with him, if we, if we died with him, if, 
if, we're, if, we, if we are faithless, yet still he will be faithful. And it brings human experience into the song. Why? Because that's an appropriate thing for us to do as believers. It's okay for me to sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. O oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet sound in your ears. Uh, some, of the, some of the songs we sing, and I, I could be wrong here, it, it feels to me like we're in a little bit of a, a change in cycle right now. For an extended amount of time, it seems like a lot of the songs that were being written were extremely experiential. All about how we feel about God. And now there seems to be a little bit of a turning of that corner again, and more and more songs are being written that focus on the nature and the character of God again. And the fact is, every Christian needs both in his library. We need them both. There's a place for both. All right, content. Don't get scared. The last two will be much quicker. The second one is unity. What these, what these hymns teach us is something about unity. That is, they focus on major Christian doctrines that unite all believers. Notice that in these hymns, even the most experiential one of them, even the one that is most experiential, is, is so general that all believers could relate to it. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. In other words, that the expressions of experience are something that all believers can relate to. That all believers can say is true of them. Let me give you an example. Not all believers can say that God has asked them to go offer their child as a sacrifice. That would be a really bad scripture to build a Christian experience doctrine on. However, I think all Christians can say something like, somewhere along the line in the Christian life, God's going to call you to something sacrificial. In other words, there's a general concept that applies to all of us. The specifics are different for all of us. And thank God that specific is unique to only one. Right? Thank God for that. The point, however, is that these are supposed to be songs that unite the church. Doctrine that unites, experience that unites. Unfortunately, boy, I'm glad this has died down a little bit. For a lot of years there, the church was at war with itself over its music. There was a generation that was looking at the generation coming behind it and saying, you, you lunatics with your newfangled music that just, I can't stand your music. You know what? This is my suspicion. My suspicion is that it wasn't mostly about the music, that it was more about the volume of the music. <laughs> I got to tell you, and, and I've, I've known this up close and personal, when churches are passing out earplugs to people when they walk in the doors, they probably ought to think about a different solution. <laughs> Just a suggestion, right? That, that maybe the volume is, if it's damaging to your ears, maybe it's too loud, right? Just a, just a possibility to consider. 
But the point is this. The generations ought to be able to encourage one another in their worship and in their singing so long as the content remains true to the Word of God. It's okay for there to be newer music. It's okay for the music to be different from the previous generation. It's okay for that to be the case. The fact of the matter is, we all have music that we prefer. And then there's a time to set our preferences aside and join together with the people of God in worship and participate together. You know what? Preferences are fine, but preference that's rooted in self-centeredness brings destruction. It will bring destruction. I think it would be good for, for one generation to validate the expressions of praise and worship of a younger generation. And it would be good for a younger generation every once in a while to remember that the older generation paid a lot of their bills and we can at least sing a song on occasion that they can join in with. It's just loving one another in the body of Christ. Amen? Just loving one another. Just loving one another. Appreciating one another in the body of Christ. God never intended for music to be a controversy or a division. Um, I want to just say this real quickly. I have to admit that there was a time in my life in which I was very wrong in how I viewed music. And I can't tell you how thankful I am that God has corrected me. Showed me some things about my own heart that needed to be dealt with. And given me the opportunity to worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's a, it's a profound thing and it's a beautiful thing. Uh, thank God for that. Thank God for that. All right, here's the last one. There's unity and then there's practice. Practice. Paul, in, this, in these books, is expressing his personal praises openly before Timothy. He's giving Timothy an example of how he worships, of how he praises. It's believed, however, that at least some of these hymns were hymns that were sung publicly by the church. That is, some were just personal expressions where Paul was blurting out his praises to God, but some were formal hymns that were sung more widely in the church that everybody knew the words to. The point is that there is both a place for private and public expression of worship that is needful. If your worship is limited to Sunday morning, it's not enough. You need some midweek worship. And listen, uh, here's the beauty, about pri the beauty of private worship. You can do things in private that go way beyond what you can do in public. Right? In, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about these kinds of things in the church. And he says, you know, there are things that are perfectly permissible. But when you're in public, there are things that are preferable because they edify the whole body in particular ways. And therefore, there are things that I do in private. In fact, in private, I do them way more than you all do. But in public, 
I limit myself in certain ways in order that the atmosphere of the corporate setting might be one in which non-competitiveness rules and we can all enter into worship together in a way that's edifying to the body. But please hear this. You get in your car alone and you're driving to work and a song starts that touches your heart. I mean, do with it what you want. You want to crank it and sing it at the top of your lungs. God bless you. Go for it. Amen? I mean, you can just let loose and don't have to think a second thing about it. Right? Now, listen. Um, my intention is not to, not to say that there's these, these kind of austere restrictions on what you do in, in public. Because in many respects, what we do in public reflects what we're comfortable with in private. Okay? So there's a, there's a, a two-way street here. The call this morning, though, is that we should so learn practice and become comfortable with worship in private that it's second nature in public. That it's not uncomfortable in public. That, man, it's, it's good that we get to be together and worship God together. I believe that Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 is, is an important scripture for us to consider as we close. It tells us It says and do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation but be filled with the spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord As I close this morning please remember this one of the things that dominates how I hope we will also always worship as a congregation is this, that our worship will always be marked by participation, not by performance. I think when it becomes so performance-oriented, that it's difficult for anybody to know where you're headed, where you're going, and they can't participate, it's doing a disservice to the body of Christ. It ought to be something that draws God's people in to participate. There's a time for performance, by the way. Performance is okay. There's a time for that. But public worship is a call for believers to enter in and to join in in our worship. I believe that Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 is an important passage because it teaches us this. Not only when we worship are we singing praises to God, but we are also speaking to one another. We're speaking to one another. I've got to say this. as I've said it repeatedly. We must understand that there is something powerful and something valuable about hearing people next to us Pray aloud and praise aloud. It is edifying. It is needful. It is, it is uplifting. It, is, it builds us up to hear the voices of God's people worshiping or praying together is a very powerful thing.
And I know that not all of us are equally inclined to be outwardly expressive. Uh, I'm going to tell you that my natural tendency is to be incredibly self-conscious. You're never going to see me dance. If I ever dance, Lord, <laughs> you'll have to blame that one on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, I want to say things like, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do, but I don't know if I am, because <laughs> that's what I am. Okay. But my point is this. There's just something beautiful about being a fellowship. And maybe if you're not totally comfortable with everything being out loud, maybe rather than be bothered by it in your quietness, maybe you can just stop and consider what a blessing it is to hear someone else utter the praises of God. And I think it's valuable for us to remember that there is a place for us to utter the praises of God in a way that the people around us can hear, that we can all be strengthened and encouraged. In fact, in fact, sometimes I find myself, uh, usually it's up here, but sometimes I find myself just wanting to be quiet because there's something in my heart that needs to be touched by hearing someone else offer praises to God aloud. And it's such a powerful thing. It's such a powerful thing when we realize that our words are not only being spoken before God, but they're being spoken before one another as a way of encouraging one another and edifying one another. So I guess what I'm saying is I encourage you in the next few moments to sing and to sing with gusto. I don't know if the songs will be your favorites, but sing them as if they were your favorites. And, and while it may not be comfortable for everyone, those of you that have been around here long enough, you know that usually in between songs, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna praise out loud, but I don't want mine to overwhelm yours. So usually I'll reach back and just turn off the mic and have an opportunity to pray and to praise aloud equally with you, same volume as you, without being a dominant voice. I want to invite you to, what do I want to say? To, to encourage yourself, to maybe step a little bit beyond a comfort zone. And say, Lord, how do I praise together with your people. How do I lift my voice, and join mine with theirs? And together, let us glorify your name. Let us worship you together. Uh, I hope that, that, uh, that we can worship our God together in spirit and in truth, and that we can do so with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength and do it with the voice that he's given to us, offering the praise of our lips to the Lord our God. So we've saved our singing, the, the couple of songs, three songs we're going to sing here. We've saved them for the end. I'm going to ask you to join with me this morning. And let's close 
offering our praises to God with a few songs. Let's sing together. Would you sing? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I'm just going to ask our musicians to play softly for one moment. I'm not going to drag this out. But let me urge you to take one more moment in God's presence. Based on that last chorus, would you take a moment, invite him. Would you invite him into whatever the immediacy of your life is, what it has been in this past week, what you anticipate it being in the week to come? Would you just say to him this morning, Lord, it is my desire to live a life of worship before you. And right now, I invite your presence to heal, to forgive, to restore, to move on from the past and to step in to what you have coming for me in these next days. Lord, by your grace, I will be your servant, your representative, your son, your daughter, your advocate in this world. Lord, I will step in and be wholly yours as you empower me by your spirit and touch my life with your presence. Would you just make that an invitation to him today? Lord, come to me. I need you today and I give myself to you today. Let's close with just 60 seconds of devotion to the Lord our God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I give myself to you. Forgive the past. Lord, strengthen your people for whatever comes over the next week. Lord, may we find that whether, whether it is in celebration or whether it is in, in heaviness of heart, that we find an, ex, an appropriate expression of praise and worship to your name. Lord, that we would walk in what it means to encourage ourselves in the Lord and to be at your disposal. Lord, strengthen your people, I pray. Forgetting those things that are behind, help us to press on. Lord, help us to walk in what you have called us to be and who you've called us to be. Help us to be your church. May your praises be, be firmly in our mouths and on our lips. May our hearts be filled with your presence. Lord, we invite you to minister to our needs, to touch us. Lord, help us to be your church. And Lord, may we worship you well together. Lord, may it be a delight to praise your name together as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please remember there's a meeting downstairs. Boy, we'd love to just fill up that mansion or wherever it is that we stay. We'd love to fill it up and just have a, have a load of people there, all right? So... At least go get some information. Find out if that's something the Lord would, would ask you to do. May his presence be with you throughout this week. God bless y'all.